Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank, a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim podcast. You have with me... Well, I should probably introduce myself first, Ibrahim Khan. You've heard a lot from me before, but someone you haven't heard from is our guest. He is known as the Chechen rebel in certain circles. Mags, have you ever graced the kind of front pages of any kind of socialite magazines? To describe the image, Mags is quite kind of, mashallah, good looking kind of guy, young Think of, like, think of kind of a, like a art, Jason Statham, but with hair. Wow, that's very kind. In answer to your question, no, I haven't graced any front pages, although maybe we'll get into this later. I was featured in a radio interview on BBC, Radio 4 BBC interview at one point, but that wasn't exactly a highlight of my career. It was one of the lowlights, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll go into that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Uh, but on a more serious level, so Mag's studied at Oxford at the same time, although we didn't meet at the time. And then he went on to set up a startup that grew very rapidly and sadly failed. But that's all good because you learned lots of lessons and you made it more likely for us, IFG, to invest in you because we like investing in failed startups because <laughs> it means you, you've learned on someone else's dollar. And, sure. and you're now doing some really interesting and exciting stuff with JAMA which is a kind of Quora question and answer platform for migrant communities. I'm sure I've like done a disservice in how I've just described that, but we can get into all this. But Marek, the first thing I wanted to chat about was how you managed to get to this country and your journey, you know, the step into lovely England. How did that whole thing happen and when? Yeah, first of all, alaikum salam, Ibrahim. Really good to be on here. And we're very lucky to have IFG on board as investors. Very supportive and great all round. So thank you. And to Mohsen as well. So actually, yes, yeah, so I came to the UK when I was 12 years old. And I came, had quite a, I guess, meandering journey to London. Because we initially, I came with my two sisters. So I'm originally from Chechnya. And I came with my two sisters. And we lived in Cornwall for a year with guardians. And when we came to England in the first, I think it was 2003, 2004, we left quite a war-torn country or a country that had been ravaged by almost 15 years of continuous war 
and sort of the brutal repression and stuff that followed afterwards. So we spent a year living in Cornwall and then a year later, the rest of my family, so my mum, my dad, and the rest of my sisters joined us and we moved to London. And yeah, mashallah, we've been living in London ever since. So it's been good, but a quite a circuitous journey. Are your sisters older than you, younger than you? Yeah, so I've actually got five sisters and one sister's older and the rest are all younger. Right. So which <laughs> yeah. ones came across with you at the start? So my older sister, who's a year older than me and just the one younger. So, yeah. Interesting. And why did mm. you guys come across before your parents? Well, my dad drew short straws. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, well, I think the idea at the time was that it was, as you probably know, it's all about getting a good education. And we were at the right age where you could go and live abroad and study and in theory could be independent. The rest of my siblings were too young to be sort of leave my parents. Yeah, yeah, makes yeah. sense. And how was it like adjusting to a new life in the UK? Were you living with, I'm presuming it was a non-Chechen family, mm. maybe non-Muslim family. So how was that whole adjustment phase? Yeah, I think we were really fortunate. We lived with three guardians who were already involved in a lot of this sort of humanitarian aid projects back in Chechnya. So they understood the cultural background really well. That said, we weren't Muslim and they certainly weren't Chechen. They were English, free English people. And they looked after us as if we were their own kids. And so it felt like when we left Chechnya the first time, at that time, it felt like a big adventure. And we went and moved to like 20 minutes from the seaside, a completely new environment, obviously new culture, new people. It felt like an adventure, to be honest with you, and it was, you saw a lot and you learned a lot about the way that the sort of the other half lives, I guess. But I think the bigger sort of adjustment was moving from Cornwall to London. <laughs> that was a much bigger culture shock because it's such a big city and things were quite different here compared to a little village in Cornwall. Where did you move to in London and was it tough? Was it easy? How did it play out? Yeah, so we moved... And we've been living pretty much around Tooting, Balham area ever since we moved. We like it so much here, that's why. <laughs> it's actually, it's changed quite a lot in the last, I guess, 17 years almost that uh, we've been living here. And yeah, I mean, it was an adjustment to apply to new schools and sort of like being uprooted from what we had at the time in Corden, which is a really nice community, really friendly kids, and sort of arriving in London and trying to navigate the whole school system and obviously, like, meeting a lot of new people and new faces. I, that was a little bit stressful. And fortunately, we had a lot of English people helped us along the way. A lot of Chechen people as well helped us along the way. My parents, actually, at the time, didn't speak any English. So I was the mandated interpreter for about six months. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that was a steep learning curve. And your parents then learned English within six months? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, their English is fluent now. I mean, they spoke a little bit of English, but when they needed to, you know, the big guns, that's when myself and my older sister would be invited. <laughs> yeah. And then six months later, they discovered that you had been chatting absolute nonsense. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was quite a sudden realization. The thing is, my mum and my dad, they're quite savvy. So I guess they've always grown up in, in Chechnya. You speak Russian and Chechen. And they moved here and I think they were quite adept and quite savvy about navigating the environment here and had a lot of help from other people. Interesting. 
where did you study at A level? Was it private or public or where did you study? When I first moved to London, we moved to a comprehensive state school nearby, which I think at the time was like one of the like bottom 50 schools in like London or something. So it was quite a rough school, but I really enjoyed my time there. I mean, the kids were all like really friendly and I think academically it wasn't great, but when you're like 14, 15, at least at that time, I wasn't particularly focused on academics. And I think my parents realized that. So they spent quite a while trying to get me out of that school, especially for sixth form. So for sixth form, I ended up going to a private school called KCS Wimbledon. I was very lucky to get a scholarship to go there, which was fully funded. And yeah, I did the international baccalaureate. They're actually not A-levels, which is, I think, twice the work or something, but doesn't seem to have had twice the impact. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, I agree. I think that IB is a lot harder than A-levels. Really? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I've not done IB, but given that A-levels was a bit of a joke, I suspect. Did you find it a bit of a joke? <laughs> That's well, it was sort of not all of them, actually, to be fair. Yeah. Not all of the A-levels were a joke at all. So, like, I think further maths, physics, maths, there was some decent, difficult stuff in there. Is that what you studied at A-level? So I actually studied eight A-levels. But what? I mean, it sounds a lot more impressive than it is. And the reason why I did it was because I realized that early on in my academic career, I realized that, look, I am not a genius, but I'm probably quite bright, brighter than average, but I'm not a genius. So how do I kind of milk the system for all it's worth and I kind of gear things for my favor? Then I decided, okay, so I'll do critical thinking as an A-level. I did after school because my school were offering it. And we started in GCSE and I'd finished it by year 12. So that was great. Wow, okay. I mean, it's not that like heavier subject, but it is an A-level. And it's mm. super, super helpful for uni applications because all the kind of applications require those kind of questions. And then maths, further maths, physics and history were the core ones. But mm. then I picked up a few cheeky ones like Urdu, which is you know, <laughs> mother tongue. I got like an English translation of the Urdu text because I could read Urdu, but it just takes ages. So I just got the English translation. I got my mom to read me the Urdu as a bedtime story. <laughs> That's amazing. So your mom was still putting you to bed when you were doing A-levels. That's very cute. <laughs> and then I did a bit of Arabic, which I got a B in, sadly. And then I did RS. I picked up RS in year 13 because I realized that the half of it was at Islam and the other half was philosophy. So I was studying both of those things in my own time anyway. Wow. So I thought I did that. But then I actually ended up with a B in that because in my AS, I smashed it and got a high A. But then in my A2, which was like the second six months of that year, was a U. That was the Islam section as well. Wow. Because I I think they were kind of probably had like their own set mark scheme. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, allow this, I'm going to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> According to the Quran and the Hadith. <laughs> yeah, you took your own path. That's amazing that you managed to fit in all of that work because it's not trivial. Did you have too much free time when you were at school? Was that the issue? How did not you organize really. yourself? I actually think I had like plenty of free time even with all these A-levels. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's because like Urdu didn't take that much work. The Arabic didn't really take that much more work because I'd studied that. The RS, I'd been reading around it anyway, so it didn't really, I mean, it was like a bit strategic, but it sounds impressive. So when you apply to somewhere like Oxbridge, where someone who you're competing with is very, very bright and has won like loads of debating competitions, and yeah, yeah. probably cleverer than you, 
but he's only done four A levels. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is so strategic. I mean, yeah, I wish I'd thought like that when I was that age. It's quite impressive. And you also came to the UK when you were like 13, right? Is that right? No, I didn't know. I came oh, yeah. when I was like four, I think, four or five. Okay, all right. Yeah. yeah. I do remember learning English here. I do remember okay. And I do remember eating some haram food as my first school lunch. And really? What was on the menu? Haram was like sausages or something. And then I threw oh, up as a result of it. Wow. So there we are. <laughs> but anyway, this is not a podcast about my... my well, I was uh, enjoying getting some background information. But yeah, so you went to A-levels, clearly you smashed them, and then you applied to study, was it history and politics? Yeah, exactly. At Oxford. Do you want to kind of like give us your kind of high-level summary of your experience at Oxford? Was yeah. It yeah, I think it was quite formative I mean it was the first time obviously that I'd left like my family since we rejoined and yeah I think I had quite a fun time I guess at Oxford and yeah I enjoyed my degree but I think I'm sort of after I graduated I realized actually like how much I really enjoyed the degree sort of I guess like the interest in my subject sort of came after university which is quite weird so I feel like I was very lucky and very fortunate to study history and politics at Oxford but I wasn't the person who sort of spent most of the time in the library. I mean, I did a lot of different things. I did a lot of sport. I was quite career focused, especially yeah. my second year trying to get internships and stuff. So the more sort of academically Puritan person who probably looked at me in disgust in first year. <laughs> well, you actually did really well sporting wise, didn't you? You were, I think, on the boxing. Did you get a blue at the end of it or not? I didn't get a blue, but I was in the Oxford boxing team won a couple of bouts and yeah it was good that would took up a lot of time to be honest i mean boxing is i think one of the more intensive sports so that kept me quite busy but i really enjoyed it it was good fun and did you do any other sports like athletics rings a bell as well for me i did triathlon club but i never competed i mean i played rugby for my college but i was never particularly into that but i really enjoyed sort of the endurance sports and boxing to a certain extent is also quite a big endurance sport because I mean, it's really physically very demanding. Chechen people have this sort of, I guess, like this image of being quite good at martial arts. So I felt like there was something I had to live up to when I went to university, whether that was triathlon club or boxing club. So I alternated between the two. I like it. <laughs> I think I went to one boxing class. And did I you? Was, I was quite overweight. And they did this like indoor thing where I got uh-huh, uh-huh. tired very quickly. And then they did this like outdoor running thing for about 400 meters. And mm. well, actually there was more than 400 meters, but that's about as much as I could bear and remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then it went downhill from there. No um, second session. No second session. Although I oh. did do shot put. Did you? Yeah, I didn't compete at all for university. But again, it was one of those strategic things where one of my friends says, well, I bet you can't compete for the university. And I said, all right, let's try and gear the system. Is that the right phrase? Anyway, and the only place that I thought, okay, where can I get in that isn't that competitive, but will do quite well for someone who's like slightly portly and shot put was the sport of choice. I'm sensing quite a good pattern here. I mean, yeah, that's very strategic. I think if you were really strategic, you could have probably got a blue as well. If you could have picked like a really good sport, I didn't know with a shot put would have been that sport for you, but there's certainly some sports where you can get a blue really easily. Yeah. It could have come out. It's true. What kind of sports are you thinking? 
So I think I heard something like, probably wasn't hockey, but there was definitely some sports where like getting a blue is like the easiest thing to do or something. I don't know. Maybe it's like, you know, like um, fives where you play like, I, don't, oh, I never understood that sport, but for what I understand, it's like playing against the wall or something with your hand. Yeah. So, I mean, by the way, for our listeners, being an Oxford blue is like a prestigious thing. Basically, it just means you represent the university and yeah. I think you need to get to a certain standard and only some sports are recognized as blue sports. With this fives thing, it's like this squash played by Etonians, essentially. That's how mm. it started. Like, it was just like a sport played in Eton or something. It's actually quite hard. The reason why I didn't go for it was because I played squash against one of the guys who's on the Blues team for the fives. And he was like, yeah, I don't really play squash that much, but it'll be good to kind of just stretch off a bit. My friends are quite good at it, but I'll just give you a game. I'm a very mediocre player in squash, but I thought, all right, I mean, this guy's, if he's quite casual, it'd be fine. And secretly, I was like rating myself. And he turns up and he just absolutely destroys me. Like it was horrific. It was, he hustled uh, you, man. I know. And then afterwards, he tells me, yeah, 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 it's quite similar to fives. And yeah, I happen to be blues on fives and I've been playing it for the last like decade. So, oh, my God. It looks like the most useless sport, but he found a use for it. Yeah. I suppose our paths have been crisscrossing in many ways since the start, but without ever, ever crossed. So after university, you immediately, I think, you launched into the startup, right? Yeah, exactly. So in my second year at university, I did an internship at a bank. And I think that was my big focus at university. I think a lot of people who come from abroad, the immigrant mentality for me was quite real. It was about getting a job, getting a career and stuff. But I was very disillusioned with my experience at the bank. I just realized that that's not really how I want to spend my life. I felt there's got to be more to life than just doing Excel sheets or whatever. So anyway, straight after university, 2014, I graduated. I decided to launch what was basically, it's a subletting platform is the easiest way to describe it. And at the time, I really didn't have any context from a startup perspective. I wasn't interested in startups. I didn't read about starting businesses, but I had this particular problem when I was at university where like you have 12 month contracts for university, rental contracts for university for housing. And actually terms last six months of the year it created big problems to me when I was trying to pay rent for months that I wasn't living in Oxford. So I decided to start this business called Unleashed. Actually, I started it with one of the guys I worked with at the bank, who was sort of like my manager. So we started it together in 2014. And yeah, it grew quite quickly in the beginning. And it seemed to be all going really well until it didn't. <laughs> so what was it that made it grow quickly? And then what happened to stop that? Mm. So I think we initially launched in Oxford. And we launched a really, really basic platform. And within, I think, two weeks, we had like almost £3,000 worth of bookings that went through the platform for a platform that launched with basically no tech whatsoever, almost no tech, sort of hobbled something together. And the fact that it took, got immediate uptake with zero marketing was quite good validation for the platform and the concept as a whole. And on the back of that, we went on to raise almost £400,000 from some really good investors here in London. And so I think we'd managed to solve a problem in a really effective way in Oxford. The thing that sort of ended up, I think, being our ultimate downfall was we'd taken all this money from investors and then we had the pressure to expand and then we were moving to London. I think London expansion is really what sort of ended up killing the startup. I mean, I can go into more detail about that, but it was essentially 
we didn't manage to crack London and we sort of needed to crack London in order to raise the next round of financing. And it was just a bit of a mess, to be honest. How long was it, the whole journey from start to finish? So I think the idea, well, I started working on the idea, like just sort of spitballing 2014, September-ish. And then we launched it 2015, like early 2015, and then it shut down April 2017. So I guess like just over two years from idea to shutting down. But yeah, it was a really valuable experience, but it's quite a painful one as well. I can know? imagine. And like at your peak, how many people were in the team? I think we were 11 people and we were handling about 50,000 pounds worth of bookings a month. It was like, it got to quite a decent size. I mean, it obviously ended up being a bit seasonal, but that was like the peak for us. I'm working on something new now. We're doing something very different. I mean, the focus for me on metrics is really valuable, but I think that like both on the headcount level, so like having 11% headcount for a company is not a good idea, especially at the early stage of the market fit. And um, focusing on a top line number, which is impressive to investors, also not the right thing to focus on, in my opinion. Yeah. Those are the lessons that I think I took away from that. Interesting. I mean, I agree with you on the headcount. Like, yeah, I feel like every single person you bring into the team, you need to have a clear idea of how they're going to yeah. more than pay their money back within, within a year. What would you mean about the kind of monthly revenues not being a target? Yeah. Well, I think revenue should definitely be a target. But I think that, again, it's probably different for consumer businesses than software businesses. But I think that, like, you basically need to build a really good product that satisfies your users. And whatever metric that you can use to measure your users' like satisfaction with the product slash willingness to pay is really good. But I think when you start focusing on uh, metrics that are like attractive to investors, that's when you sort of run into problems. So for us, I think like a more important than having a high monthly revenue or GMV or whatever was actually like who's returning, what are our costs of acquisition and sort of how satisfied are people after they use the platform. And on those metrics, I think we weren't doing very well. Although we had like a really good guess, corner of the market and when there was a listing on the platform, we sort of four or five times more demand than the listings were available i think that like the focus on gmv which is what investors wanted to see was probably the wrong thing to focus on we should have done much more on product interesting i'm just thinking about that experience in light of our own experiences but also in terms of some of the startups that we see Um, yeah and so i suppose what kind of like what would your advice be to your younger self if you were kind of in 2016 let's say what would you say to mags of 2016? Well, I think basically it's just to be more product focused. I mean, if you're talking about specifically from a business perspective, I think you have to be really product focused. And by the way, I'm not saying that you shouldn't measure revenue. I think revenue is a really great thing to focus on, like as validation that people are willing to pay for your product. But I think that you need to take a really critical perspective onto like, okay, we might have revenue, but are actually like people enjoying using the platform or is a product that we've created actually good? Is it good for like, the market is it good for like people's experiences another example of that is imagine that you build a platform that basically does enough to generate revenue but people rate your product five out of ten once they've used it i think that's a really negative place to be in because it means that like as soon as there's a battle of science that comes along you're basically yeah. going to like get completely destroyed and especially if you want to bring it into like a different market which is what we try to do with london that's where the glaring holes in the product show up and i guess my advice would be just to be really critical about 
what's really working about your platform, why it's working, rather than taking these sort of what people call vanity metrics to a certain extent. What about more specifically, like what kind of like hard yeah. advice would you say to Mags, the younger? How do you hire a founder? Do you hire oh, yeah. a virus fast? What yeah. in particular should I have done with my product? That, yeah. That sort of thing. I think when it comes to the founding team, I think, I mean, again, it was probably too late to change the ship at that point, but I think it's really important to have a technical co-founder. So I would have made sure that I had someone who was like exactly the same incentives as me, but was able to like build the actual product and iterate on it and sort of help us to reduce our burn rate, how much money we spent a month, sort of like a co-pilot who was technical. That's like number one thing I would have done. The second thing actually to me is about work. At the time, I was working really hard on the platform, and I think you should have been more strategic about what are the things you sort of spent your working hours focusing on. So I was working very hard back then, I think, but I wasn't working in a very smart way and also not focusing on the right thing. So that's probably as concrete. What kind of things would you say, I suppose, in a fairly abstract, like what would you say the kind of things that you kind of work on now that you perhaps wouldn't have before yeah so with this current thing that we're working on obviously i've got a co-founder who's extremely committed and i think we're both exactly aligned in terms of our incentives and so he does everything technical from the full stack and he's very like willing to learn and pick up new skills and there's no like oh i can't do this i don't want to do this let's like outsource it to someone else for a thousand pounds that doesn't happen and so i'm focusing on the product and I'm focusing on the design stuff and also just making sure that like everything that he can't do I'm able to do so I think those are the things that we focus on today and obviously that's like a reflection of our team composition and also from that is what like the day-to-day focus how that's split up so that's quite abstract but I think it works really well no I think that makes sense I suppose what I was kind of thinking about was so with my time we generally take work a nine-to-five Having said that, I'm often working late as well, but typically we aim for the nine to five. And in that, what I've tried to do myself personally is to mm. put like the first three hours of the day where okay. I will really quite religiously avoid calls and mm-hmm. even dealing with emails or anything, basically, and just really? the long term stuff. There's like a Dale Carnegie thing or something where he talks about how there's urgent and not important things there's urgent and important things then there's not urgent but important things and then there's not urgent and not important things so not urgent not important just don't do them at all and urgent and important you're going to have to do it but i would typically want to do that in afternoon where i have lower productivity or lower kind of focus or creativity and Mm -hmm. i kind of force myself to do the long-term not urgent stuff because it's drip drip stuff but that's the thing that is building the defense around so for us that looks like content like we're a content business for us that looks like me writing content mainly yeah i think it's really important to have a structured approach to your day obviously we're going through the throes of the pandemic at the moment there's a lot of adjustment that we have to make around that but actually i agree with you i mean i'm extremely structured in the way that i spend my time and i think without that structure you become completely ineffective the thing that really works for me actually is i use this thing called the pomodoro technique i don't know whether it's just something that particularly works in my psychology but i've been doing it for like a year 
and basically just have 25 minutes on five minutes off but it's just like when you have a short enough period of time but also long enough to be productive it really focuses your mind and so for me that works really well so I always work in bursts of 25 minutes and I do like a full session every day and I'm so much more productive sport is still a big part of my life so I try and make sure that I do that I think that balance is really important Agreed completely. And so, Mags, what did you do after? I mean, you'd raise like, I think, hundreds of thousands of pounds, hadn't you? You were saying 400,000 or? 400,000, I think 380. Wow. Yeah. And I suppose this is important for startup founders as well. How did you kind of deal with investors? Do you feel like you should have dealt with them differently or improved those kind of interactions or relationships? Or do you think it went fine ultimately? Yeah, I think it's really emotionally hard to take money from people. And then obviously when the business fails, I think it's the most excruciating thing. It's like your worst sort of nightmare coming to fruition. I think in terms of dealing, I mean, the way that we dealt with investors, obviously I think some people are going to be angry and upset about it. I think most people just sort of took it in their stride. And if you're going to invest money in a startup, most people just say, look, in your mind, write it off as soon as you invest it. <laughs> so I think... <laughs> People who didn't take that sort of advice when they started to get into the investing game, they were like a little bit angry and annoyed. I mean, fortunately, I'm like on good terms with everyone that invested in my previous company. But I think communication is really important. And something that one of my friends told me is like, basically, not about the fact that this happened, it's about how you handle and communicate it. That's really important. And so obviously, you call everyone who put money into your business, no matter how painful it is. And you explain things. I probably could have done things like better and differently. I mean, I was 23 or 24 at the time, 23, I think. So I think there was a lot of immaturity and like maybe like a sort of lack of willingness to like show up. That was like sort of holding back a little bit. But yeah, it's not a perfect situation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what do you think is a perfect time from an age perspective to launch yeah. your startup? I don't know. I think I sort of go differently. I mean, I like change my opinion on this and I'd be curious to hear what you think. But I think straight after university is too early. I mean, most people are not mature enough. I definitely wasn't mature enough to start a business straight after university. Even though I know there's people who start like companies from Silicon Valley and blah, blah, blah. So I would say probably after you spent two or three years working somewhere else. So after university, so maybe 24, 25, I think that's a good time. And the only reason I wouldn't say later is because obviously as you get older, you might get married, you might have kids or house, whatever. But if you can avoid doing all of that stuff, then look, I think you like late 30s, early 40s, 50s, <laughs> I think it's all sort of okay. What yeah. do you reckon? I agree with you. I think that later is better. The way I think about it is, and the advice I give to people is like, if you want to do a startup and you have a clear idea and a route to market and you've got investment and that sort of thing, and it's all kind of falling in your lap take a gap year straight after uni and give it a go because mm. if you chance upon a Facebook then it's fine great within the year you probably have a good sense of if this is a complete flop or not and if it's worth pursuing then you carry on pursuing it if it's not then you've not lost very much and you probably gained a lot of experience so yeah. at that point you can go back into the corporate world but if you don't have any ideas I wouldn't force it and I think there's a great amount of experience yeah. you can get from going into the corporate world or any kind of business and just learning from everyone else. Because these businesses that have matured to the point that they can hire lots and lots of people, they are businesses. And yeah. you learn so much about how a business that has matured over many decades, if not centuries, ends up looking like. 
And mm. so then you have kind of an end point. It doesn't have to be the perfect end point, but you have an end point of what a startup would look like. So you have at least some kind of idea of things to aim for. And it doesn't matter if it's the wrong thing that you're aiming for, because that will change. Whatever you end up at will be different to mm. where you previously worked. But the point is you have something to go for. And so that kind of, I think, short circuits a bit of learning. I think networks will become really, really important in all this stuff. And going into the corporate world really helps with that. I think typically all pretty much of our founders, they're not fresh out of uni. I think not one of our founders really invested in straight out of uni. They've all been people, maybe this is us, our subconscious bias, right? They've all been people who've had something under the belt before them. And a lot of the time have worked in some kind of professional capacity. So maybe we're just matching with people of our own backgrounds. (laughs) And, And they also happen to be ethnic minorities at least like 80% of the time. So Yeah, it can't uh, be a coincidence. So I think it's very suspicious. So Mags, you went off and did you work for on Fido after this straight away or was it somewhere else? Yeah, I think once I finished with Unleash, I took a couple of months off and I thought about what I wanted to do next. And I was already friends with like some of, you know, on Eamon and Hussein from Onfido. Onfido is the real startup success story out of Oxford in the last sort of five, six years, I guess. So they were doing really, really well and they were growing really quickly. And I came in and issued to do a couple of projects for them. And the sort of projects continued. And so I contracted with them for about a year. But at the back of my mind, I was always planning to start something else. And I think I agree with you. I don't think that you should force anything at all. I'm skeptical of where people want to say, oh, like, I want to start a business and I'm going to do it in this area. I'm going to like, try and find something. I think it can definitely work, that sort of approach. But I sort of feel like you might end up trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. So I was aware of that as, like, I guess a bias. But I knew that I wanted to start something else. It was more just like I wanted to take another risk. I mean, at the age I'm at at the moment, what kind of things I need to survive, like, I would want to take as much risk as I possibly can. So that was the incentive. So I knew that going in on Fido and then I left on Fido to start my new thing. So talk to us about JAMA and how the idea came about and how the kind of journey has been to date. Yeah, it's been really good. I mean, I started this company with a friend of mine who's Somali, it's called Abdul, a software engineer. And it really sort of feeds into, or it's based on the experiences that Abdul and myself had when we first came to the UK, something I touched upon earlier. When I first arrived in the UK, one of the most like, you know, navigating the rental market or like, you know, schools and university and careers, whatever, the most helpful people are people from our community. So for me, it was the Chechen community. For Abdul, it was the Somali community. And both of us haven't been fortunate enough to go to university. Now we try and pay that thing forward with young people who are coming up from like the Chechen community, the Somali community. So that was the initial like pain point that we realized is like, how do we make it easier for people to tap into the knowledge of their community and how do we make it sort of easier for other people to give back so JAMA is something that was sort of started on the back of those discussions and it's a question and answer platform for ethnic minority communities and we want to make it just easier for people to share knowledge within the community and ultimately to sort of advance and rise up in the society they live in the broader society they live in so, yeah. I have a great idea for you Max so, yeah <laughs> I'm uh, always good. taboo topics question and answers around that so like ethnic minority women and like sexual health and all that sort of thing because even like islamically it's good to be sexually healthy and 
all that stuff is encouraged, but it's something that's probably a bit hard to get hold of the information. So yeah. I reckon that could be quite interesting. I think that's one of the content areas that occasionally comes up. I mean, nothing so specific as sexual health. There's a lot of things around taboo topics around like people getting married and how to behave around their in-laws and various different topics. I mean, ultimately, Jam is a platform for exactly those conversations and discussions to take place because you wouldn't go on like Quora or Reddit or even Facebook to have those discussions because it's just not the platform for them. Yeah. And in fact, like if you ask a question, it really matters who answers that question and for them mm -hmm. to understand the sort of the context of where you're coming from and being able to account for all these uh, cultural nuances that you will share. Those are the most fruitful conversations that will happen on the platform. And yeah, that's one of the topics that occasionally comes up. Interesting. And how do you guys make money? Yeah. Well, so we're not making money at the moment. And I think with consumer businesses, this is quite standard. You spend the first, I guess, couple of years building the product and building the network, and then you sort of switch on the knob to monetize it. And so right now we're in the stages of building the product, building the network, and then in the next hopefully year or year and a half, we'll start to monetize it through different ways. And that's, that would be exciting. Fantastic. And why should people, I guess, go on JAMA right now and sign up, which I think obviously they should do, but why should they do that? Well, I think today you can sign up to JAMA because you've got two needs. One is you might want to ask a question that like Google can't answer, or you couldn't find an answer to that question anywhere else apart from your community. So it might be something about applying to university. You might get advice about careers or career decisions or whatever the other reason you might go on that is to answer a question so if you've got some kind of experience that you want to share you might work in startups or venture capital or you've got in and studied at oxford or you've got some kind of insight and knowledge to share that you want to share with your community you can go on there to answer those questions from other people in your community those are two reasons that people sign up today more generally it's about like connecting with your community and sort of staying connected to it without necessarily having to go to every single event and read every single WhatsApp message that comes through on your phone, just making it easier to stay connected and be part of your community. Nice. And what's your kind of dream that JAMA is aiming towards? What will it become in 10 years time? Well, I think what we would like to do is become the hub for everything to do with your identity and your community. So we would like for it to be possible for you to find jobs through JAMA, whether that's from corporate advertisers, you know, big companies that want to hire outside of diverse backgrounds, whether it's from those people or people just sharing information about jobs that become available in their company. So that's like one key area that we want people to use the platform for in the future, or whether it's like renting accommodation and finding someone from your community who shares your values and shares your like day-to-day -day habits or whatever. We just basically want to become a hub for Everything that you do with your community in the real world today, we want to make it easier for you to do online through JAMA. And as I said, like jobs, accommodation, buying and selling, all of those things are part of that. And we want to create infrastructure to enable that. Makes a lot of sense. What have been the kind of highlights of your journey so far? I think the feedback has been amazing, to be honest. Like we've sort of started off right now quite narrowly within the Somali community. And the feedback from people writing in either like, through our like, message board or through email telling us like this is exactly the kind of thing they're looking for and they want to participate in. The take-up has been really good. And I think when you start to see something really work, you lose control of it. That's when you realize that like, okay, this is something that the market wants and it's not just like something that we've 
concocted up in our brain. So that's been really good, the feedback that we've got. We've had some really good Q&A sessions as well. So one of the things that we do is like, we'll have people who are like role models in their community or who have particular insight and knowledge about a specific topic doing Q&As on the platform. So taking questions. Some people get like 150 questions in the space of 24 hours, which I think, again, shows you that there's like a really specific unmet need from people to like get that sort of long tail of information that you can't get from Google. So that's been a really big highlight. That's incredible. And by the way, any listeners who have like a specific expertise or area of interest, drop us a line. Ibrahim is like finance guru and mags at jamma.co, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Come, on, come on over. We're doing a lot of Q&A sessions at the moment and they're really popular. So if there's anything that you want to share, there's some knowledge that you want to share, that would be great. And you'll be in good company. I've been on it, which is not necessarily good company, but you've got people like Saima Iqbal, who is a very prominent GP from Manchester, Adim Yunus, the founder of Single Muslim, Arfa, who founded Muslimic Makers. All sorts of fantastic people have been on there. So do drop us a line and check it out. Mags, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, Are there any kind of last minute pearls of wisdom or like a message from the heart from the chechen people to the world that you'd like to get, tell our audience it doesn't have to be <laughs> chechen people i guess i wish you'd ask me to prepare some really insightful statement before this nothing insightful comes to mind but i think just if anyone's thinking about starting their own business i would just say look if you can afford to take the risk definitely take it and make sure that you have someone really fun and qualified along for the ride with you makes sense in many ways, it's like finding a wife, isn't it? Yeah, you hear that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Max. Yeah, it's thank been you. A pleasure. Until next time. Salam alaikum. Okay. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.